Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third. Uh, we are in the final week of our summer series called Among American Gods. This summer, we have spent 14 weeks looking closely at Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and examining the Ten Commandments and how they confront the gods of our American life. Last week, we looked to the epilogue of the Ten Commandments, and we saw there that the fears we choose to listen to govern whether we live or die. This week, we're going to examine what worship looks like for Israel and for us in this new covenant relationship with God. So thanks for being with us this morning. I became a Christian during the summer after my senior year of high school. It's about a month before college started, I went to a place called Windy Gap. It's a young life camp in the mountains of North Carolina. There, I heard the gospel for the first time and I responded. Uh, when I got back to Durham, uh, my group of high school friends, uh, most of us were athletes, um, none of us were uh, very religious. Uh, they didn't really know what to do with me. Um, I'd only ever loved wrestling before, so it was weird to have something else <laughs> that uh, was defining me. So uh, as high school boys do, we made fun of one another. So they called me Moses Mondu, and uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I didn't even have a beard at that point. Um, but so this interesting happened. I also didn't make it easy. I made it kind of easy for them. So I get back from this camp and within, I think, 48 hours, we were leaving for another camping trip, the high school guys. And it was our last adventure together before we get scattered to different universities across the East Coast. And, um, and so uh, I had just become a Christian and I did not have a Bible. So I spent most of those uh, two days trying to figure out what kind of Bible to buy. I went to Walden Books. Uh, which I don't know if they exist anymore. Uh, it's like a precursor to Barnes and Noble. So I go to the bookstore to buy one and um, the employee says, okay, uh, what kind of Bible do you wanna buy? And I, I say, uh, there's more than one? Like, I, di I didn't know there was more than one. And so I, I didn't know, no one told me how to buy a Bible. So I was like, just give me the biggest one. And, uh, <laughs> and so I ended up, uh, because of this, I ended up underpacking for our camping trip. Uh, I, I basically just bought this giant five-inch uh, life application study Bible. It was huge, hardback. It was, it was huge. Um, so that became a fixture of, of the trip. And um, I remember a few days into the, into the trip, uh, uh, Rusty, my friend, was giving me a hard time over a fire. And, uh, and so I jokingly said to him, well, you know, you know, Rusty, man does not live by just bread alone. And he goes, well, Derek, man needs clean underwear too. And so <laughs> I was like, Touche, Rusty, touche. It was, it, was, it was a really great weekend, but they were getting to know me in a new way. Like, who is this new Derek? Um, and uh, one of my friends on that trip, his name was Matt. And uh, let me tell you a bit about Matt. Matt has a soft heart and a hungry mind. It's a great combination of things uh, to have. And so over spiritual conversations that would happen during those three or four days, uh, it, it was revealed to me that one of Matt's real struggles in his journey towards God was this idea of worship. Why does God demand praise from people? Is he insecure? Does he need us to remind him how great he is? That doesn't seem very godlike, does it? Maybe he has short-term memory loss. Is he, is he codependent? Is God codependent on us? These were some of Matt's earnest questions. He wasn't just trying to be inflammatory. And Matt's not alone. Many of my friends, many of you in this room, many of your friends, as, as they journey closer to Jesus, become confused by this very fundamental aspect of Christian life, worship. 
In fact, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, he also had the same struggle in his nascent faith. He found the commands to praise and worship God to be a stumbling block to him. And, and what, what was happening in C.S. Lewis's life, he says that the, the horizontal reality was defining the vertical because he would say, look, in, in, my, in life in general, we routinely reject people who seek and expect praise and adulation from us. They're not the kind of people that we uh, are, are close to. So there's something wrong with those kinds of people. Therefore, there must be something wrong with God. The horizontal right, was affecting the vertical. And this is what Lewis says, and it's beautiful. He says, what was happening is that a picture, both ludicrous and horrible, of who God was, had appeared in my mind. And it was that image, right, this distorted and skewed image of who God was, that was really shifting how he understood his life and how he understood worship. Like Lewis, we, we, we can do the same thing. The horizontal realities of our life can define the vertical and images that we have of God, the wrathful judge, the scorekeeper, the lawgiver, right, can change and affect how we view worship. This is why I'm so grateful for Exodus chapter 22 verses, Exodus 20 verses 22 and 26, because we get to see a window, a snapshot into God's heart for worship. You can read along with me in your bulletins, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, or your private parts may be exposed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, you alone are God. You alone are worthy of, of our worship, and you alone have the words of eternal life. And so we ask, by the power of your spirit, uh, would you be present and speak to us and illuminate your word for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's happening in Exodus 20 in this passage is that uh, after giving, God, uh, giving Israel the Ten Commandments and um, initiating this covenant relationship with them, God wants his people to freely worship and to worship quickly because he knows that if he does not give shape to their worship, they will either return to broken forms of worship that they had known before, or worse, they would adopt and um, take into themselves the worship practices of their pagan neighbors. And so he speaks to them about what their worship should look like. There are three things we're gonna talk about from this text, three things we're gonna learn about the nature of worship. The first is that worship is relational. That may not be the first word that you think of when you think of worship. The last uh, few weeks I've asked some people, uh, what is uh, one word you would use to describe worship here at third? And uh, here are some other responses that I got. Orderly, punctual, traditional, contemporary, uh, theological, rote, loud, not loud enough, beautiful, deep, confusing. These are all words that uh, people use to describe worship. No one said relational, 
or intimate, though I, I believe it is here. That's what this passage actually puts in front of us, is that, that actually worship is relational. So we see this a couple ways. Uh, God wants Israel to take the relationship seriously. So God calls Israel at the beginning of our text as a witness that he spoke to them from heaven. So in one sentence, God identifies the parties of the covenant and the special divine nature of their relationship. In the next verse, we find that God reminds Israel that, that their covenant responsibilities matter, that they are to actually keep the 10 commandments, the 10 words that he's spoken. It says, have no gods beside me and make no idols. This is a, um, a, a technical form in uh, covenant writings in the ancient Near East. It's called an insipid. It's, he just refers to two commandments, but what he really means is all 10, right? So he's calling back into remembrance the responsibilities of this relationship. And so God reaffirms uh, the relationship, and then he reminds Israel of their responsibilities. And what God is saying is that this relationship matters. And another way we see the relational nature of worship, how is that in the core of what worship is, is when in the text God says, wherever I cause my name to be remembered, there I will come to you and bless you. I love, I love that this text connects corporate worship with the drawing near of God, the presence of God and the blessing of God. Where I'm remembered, there I will dwell. That is intimacy. Where I am remembered, there I will bless. That is God's love and his presence. He wants Israel, what this passage is telling, he wants Israel to experience the beauty and the goodness of his life, and he wants it to take root in them. And that is why he moves towards us in worship. Do you believe that, follower of Jesus? <laughs> Do you believe that, Christian? I don't know why you have come to worship today. It could be out of duty, obligation. You could have good motivations in that. But know this, God has come today out of love to bless you because he, he wants to be near you. Worship is not primarily about God receiving stuff or things from you. Worship is about God giving himself to us. God giving himself to us. C.S. Lewis, is, this is what he failed to understand younger, when he was uh, younger in his faith. And, and this change happens for him around this very idea. And he goes on to say later that actually it is the process of being worshiped. It is in the process of being worshiped that God communicates his presence. Worship is relational. So the image behind this passage of who God is, it's not some rigid rule giver. It's, it's the image of, what, of a lover who desires to protect his relationship with us so that he could be near us and bless us. So one, one question to wrestle with for us is this, what image of God is driving your worship? Has a picture ludicrous and horrible of who God is developed? Does the concept of who God is reflect who he really is? That he wants to draw near to you and to bless you? The first thing our passage shows us is that worship is relationship. Second is that worship is not about us. That's good news for us. Worship is not about us. What happens at the center of this text is that God teaches and tells Israel specifically how to build an altar and what to do with it. 
And in the construction of this altar, there's some beautiful things happening. You could just pass over this and go, okay, yeah, that's how you make an altar. But there's some, some cool, there's really neat things happening in this text I want to unpack for us. So the construction of this altar of God, both in its function, what it does, in its form, how it's made, what it's made of, radically decenter human effort from the work of worship. What is happening in this text in the construction of the altar, God is radically decentering our human effort from the work of worship. It is not about us. So let's look at this function. Let's talk about the function of the altar. The function of the altar is about holiness. I love also, by the way, <laughs> that after making the covenant uh, with Israel clear, what's the first thing that God does? Provides uh, mercy for their failing the covenant. Isn't it? <laughs> like the first thing that God does is he says, here's an altar because you're going to need to do this, right? There are sins and guilt that's going to need to be transferred. But the function of the altar is precisely that. It's the work of holiness. Holiness is about belonging to God. And what is happening in the act of sacrifice, burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, is that the guilt of the worshiper is being transferred into the animal. And so that the mercy of God can exist, right? Between the worshiper and God. This, this is the work of holiness. And that is why what happens at this altar must be God's work and God's work alone. Because this altar, it is a part of the means by which God makes unholy people like you and me holy. Holiness is God's work. There can be no uncovered sin in his presence. This is also why our passage ends with that awkward phrase about um, not having any steps because then uh, their nakedness would be exposed and it just, just ends right there. Well, that, that's also a case of uh, there being uncovered sin in God's presence. So how, how does that work? Well, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have undergarments the way that you and I did. And before the fall, being naked was good. After the fall, being covered is good. God covering our nakedness is good. And so if someone would be walking in worship up steps and have exposed nakedness in God's presence, it would be saying, there can be unconfessed sin in the presence of God. There can be unmediated sin in God's presence, and there cannot. So that's why even there, there's a prohibition. So the function of the altar is all about holiness, and God is the one who owns this space alone. So what about the form? That's the function. That's what happens there. What about the form? So we find in the text that uh, this altar is, God, God says you can make it out of earth. If you make it out of stone, though, it must be uncut. It cannot be dressed. No human tool can have touched it. And what's going on here is that the form of the altar is about idolatry. Actually, it's probably better to say the form of the altar is about resisting idolatry. So what is happening here? The, the altar has to be made in such a way that people would not be tempted to worship it. So it is simple, earth, stone. And this altar must be made in a way so that no human being can claim ownership of the altar because they have contributed to it. They've shaped it themselves. This is why the stone must be uncut. And what the text is saying is that God alone, he is the only one who shapes the altar space. This worship space is his and his alone. You and I are here, we are here by grace. We remain by grace, but it is not our effort or our work that defines this space. It is God's. 
All we bring to the altar, brothers and sisters, is our guilt. That is all Israel brought, their guilt. And so what is beautiful in this text is that in both function and form, worship is not about us. It's about God. This is, this, this is one of the more dangerous things, I think, that we can uh, struggle with or can be prone to as, as Christians. There's a lot of ways that this can um, manifest. It could be in, in the way that we treat worship um, like consumers, our preferences. We have to have this kind of worship or that kind of worship or we like this kind of preaching. Um, that, that can absolutely show that worship is about us. Sometimes you can see that worship is about us when uh, we are consumed by what we have failed to do, who are consumed by what we've done, our sin and our brokenness, as if this place, the worship space of God, is not the place where sin is forgiven. (laughs) This is absolutely where it's forgiven, but we feel unworthy as if I can't be in this place because I'm a sinner. Now, that's why this whole place exists. This whole thing exists to be able to make unholy people holy but I think there's even a more insidious way that this happens, and that is, that is by seeing your life of worship as something that you do before God. This is, the, this is the way that most of us see our life of worship. This is the way I saw my life of worship for a long time. This temptation, that, that my work, my work in worship is something I do before God. It looks something like this. That, that we are a, we're religious people and we do important religious things. We come to church on Sunday. We sing words that give glory to God. We intercede for the world. We listen to sermons about the gospel. And we might need God's grace in order to do it all. But in the end, worship is still what I do before God. What we do before God. And that is an us-centered view of worship. This came crashing down in my life um, when I was, uh, I was at a church in downtown Boston uh, during seminary. My wife and I had visited for a couple of weeks and my, my mom had died about uh, two years before, a horrible uh, battle with lung cancer. And ever since, there's just been this big disconnect in my heart. Like I just was having a hard time feeling things I should be feeling. And um, I remember being in worship and we were in the, in the middle, right, right in the center of the rah-rah Jesus <laughs> kind of choruses. And I just remember feeling just how, uh, how much these words uh, did not describe uh, the reality of who I was, the reality of who God was. Um, I felt like I had to manufacture, right, this experience in this moment. And I wanted words that just told me uh, what was true. And, um, and what, was, what was really interesting for me in this moment is this is when I really discovered uh, the Lord's Supper and Eucharist is like this really beautiful thing. Before that, I was a really low church guy. Um, but wh- what I discovered is um, I, I could let the liturgy of the Eucharist drag me into God's presence, right? Just, just it was who, who God was and who I, and my emotions in that moment didn't matter. It didn't matter that my heart didn't feel what I was saying. Those words were shaping me. Does that make sense? And, and this, 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 is a, this is a beautiful thing that can happen when we realize that worship is not about us. So worship is relational. Worship is not about us. And the third is that worship, our worship is fulfilled in the triune God of grace. 
Our worship is fulfilled in the triune God of grace. So even though the worship that is described and laid out here in, in, in uh, Exodus 20 is beautiful, and um, here at Sinai had all of the functional elements, even within the Old Testament, you realize that this, this worship pointed forward to something else, something greater, that it was, it was yearning for a fulfillment, something that was to come. You see this in many places in the Old Testament where God says things like, I hate your feasts. Um, what is the worship the Lord requires? Mercy, not sacrifice. In uh, Micah, he says, what, what does the Lord require? To walk humbly, to do justice, um, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The New Testament, when it looks back on this, it says that actually the, the worship system, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a shadow. It wasn't the, the thing itself. It wasn't the reality. And that sacrifices offered endlessly year after year could never make perfect those who draw near to God in worship. A greater sacrifice is needed. What is that? Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is the new covenant of Jesus. The Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. This is the covenant I'll make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their hearts I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. If worship can be about us, then what Hebrews shows us is that there is a kind of worship that can be radically not about us. This is Trinitarian worship, right? This is a worship focused not on us, but on Jesus and the triune God of grace. Um, this reality hit me through the book uh, that I'm going to show you now. It's called uh, Worship, Community, and the Triune God of Grace. It is my favorite book, and um, it's by J.B. Torrance. Um, uh, this impacted me so much, I named my son after him. So it's Fisher Torrance. That's where Fisher's middle name comes from. And I, I, I bumped into this book uh, during that season of my life where my emotions and my uh, understanding of worship were all over the place. And what was beautiful in this is he unpacks what, what Trinitarian worship looks like, what worship in light of the gospel of grace looks like. And if you only hear one thing this week, brothers and sisters, hear this. At the center of worship is not your worship, but Jesus's. Hear this. There is only one person whose worship God will ever find pleasing and acceptable in his sight. And it is not yours. And it is not mine. Christian worship, Trinitarian worship is this. It is mystery. I promise this is not heresy. <laughs> this is, it is mystery, but it breaks our brains. Christian worship is this. Not the activities you do before God. Christian worship is this. We participate through the Holy Spirit in the worship of Jesus and his communion with the Father. That is Christian worship. 
not our worship before God, our activity, our participation by the Spirit in Jesus' worship of the Father. Christ, Christ's baptism is our baptism. It is set forth for us in water. Christ's sacrifice is our sacrifice set forth at the table through the blood and the body, the wine and the bread. Christ's worship is our worship set forth in the liturgy, the words and the prayers. This is good news. So the, the, the worship that matters today is not yours, but Christ. The sacrifices offered to God today that matter are not yours. They are Christ's. The prayers, the words, the obedience, the attitudes of your heart, your thoughts of your mind, God accepts today, not yours, but Christ's. Torrance says it this way, anything we say about worship, the forms of worship, the practice, procedure, must be said in light of him to whom all human worship is a response. It must be said in the light of the gospel of grace. All of your worship, Christian, is in response to the worship of Christ. All is a response to the gospel of grace. Amen? This is a worship where the horizontal defines all of the vertical. And this is one of the reasons why I said yes to applying to be a pastor of discipleship and parish ministry here, because this is a place shaped by gospel-centered Trinitarian worship. This is why the gospel is central to most of all of what we do. This is why we make much of Jesus in this place. And so, so like Israel, Worship is your rhythm of renewal. God, God told them to worship and gave them instructions on how to do it in order to keep them in covenant with himself so that they would not take on the gods around them, but be renewed and reorienting the aim of their love back to him. But here is, the, here, is the, here is the beautiful part of the gospel for us. We are like Israel, but we're unlike them as well. Unlike Israel, our altar, the altar with which God is present to us, is not made of earth or stone. It is an altar made of bone and flesh and sinew. It is the human heart. And you can offer, Christian, you can offer unto God something Israel could never have dreamed of. A life of a living sacrifice. Continual worship in response to the worship of Jesus. That is beautiful. That is worship. Worship is relational. Worship is not about us, but worship is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel of grace. Um, I want to tell you about Matt's story. I realized that I started the story with him and I thought I should come back and tell you a little bit about him. So Matt had some worship issues, but Matt was able to work his, his worship issues out over time. Actually, uh, Matt became a Christian at my um, bachelor party of all places. Not a place where a lot of conversions happen usually. I understand that. But um, here's what was beautiful. Here's what happened. Um, Matt just experienced a group of men whose lives were yielded in response to the gospel of grace. And so when we were together, what, what did we do in that time? I'll tell you what we didn't do. We didn't think about Matt. 
We didn't construct it around Matt. We didn't tell Matt all the things he needed to do to get right with God in order to become a Christian. You know what we did? We read the words that we read today. We confessed our sins. We said prayers. We feasted on the flesh and the blood of Jesus. We cried out to Jesus. Men laid hands and prayed over me the promises and the mercies of God. We cried out together for our need for Christ. And Matt was swept up in that so that he gave his life to Christ in the middle of that time. He said, I want this. This is, I don't know what is happening right now, but this is what I want. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to be drawn near to God. I want to receive God in this way. And it's beautiful because Matt's a phenomenal musician and worship is a normal part of his life now. Worship is fulfilled in the triune God of grace. So here's our, here's our conclusion. Uh, to this sermon and our series. I just, I wanna encourage you. I wanna exhort you, third. You, you are God's covenant people. New covenant of Jesus and his blood. You are his covenant people and you walk amongst gods. They are scattered and littered all around you. And, and one of my favorite quotes is by Tony Campolo. He says this, he says, we may live in the best Babylon in the world, but it is still Babylon. <laughs> and the church is called to come out of her. Amen? How do we do this? Worship. Worship is how we come out of Babylon. We worshiped our way into sin and we worship our way out. Living sacrifices yielded in response to the gospel of grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit. We love you. We want to love you. Um, we thank you that um, you have so moved towards us in mercy um, that by faith we might even receive the worship that we cannot give on our own. And we do not say that it is fair, but we say that it is true. And so we, as a community, we ask God that you would help us receive this gospel of grace. For those of us who are living life as if worship is something that we do before God, Father, would you set us free? Would you help us to confess? Give us words to say that we are sorry. We do not want to enter into your space thinking that we can do something there to prove to you how good we are. Would you instead, would you help us to, um, to receive and step into the mystery that, that true worship is participating through the Spirit in Jesus' very communion with you, his Father. Praise be to God, amen.